Goodbye Forever, Volume 2 by Nat Chang Rinpoche. Chapter 6, Part 1. Chapter 6, Sammy Ling. The next morning I enjoyed a marvellous English fried breakfast cooked by the ladies. An hour later, straddling my 500 BSA chopper, I headed up the Gloucester Road and thence north on the M5. The M5 turned into the M6. I smiled at a sign that read the North and took it up to 90 miles an hour for a short spell. The road was almost empty and so I felt easy about the speed. The M6 finally vanished into the A road that led into Dumfriesshire. I reached Lockerbie by the early evening and hooked off to Iskaldemir. Then suddenly I saw the sign for Sammy Ling. I turned into the drive, parked my motorcycle and entered the lobby of the lovely old building. There was no one around. I went and sat in the library. The door had been ajar so it had revealed itself as a place to sit. After a while, a head poked around the door. Are you, she looked at a sheet of paper, Nagakpa Chogyam or Victor Simerson? Both, I grinned. Which would you prefer? Which would be more appropriate here? Either, but I wouldn't know. Well, Vic Simerson dresses like this and Nakpa Chugyam wears Nakpa robes. I choose... How do you pronounce your Tibetan name? Nakpa Chugyam. I choose Nakpa Chugyam then, she smiled. My name's Jan, Jan McCulloch, and I'm filling in for the secretary who's somewhere else. Nice to meet you, Jan. Nice to be met, she responded, raising her eyebrows in an unexpected manner. She showed me to my room and as we ascended the stairs, Jan said, you'll have to tell me what your name means later and how it goes with the robes. My pleasure. There aren't many people here at the moment, so I'll give you the double room at the end there. It has a nice view of the garden. Most kind of you. A room to myself with a double bed. This was major comfort. I was delighted. Jan told me that dinner was available in half an hour. It's just vegetable soup with toast, but it's good soup unless you're one of these people who can't exist without meat. No, I'm not one of those. I'm happy with most things. Vegetable soup sounds lovely, but is there butter or margarine for the toast? Butter, if you're on my table, I bring my own. I can't bear margarine. I think we're going to get on, she said over her shoulder as she disappeared down the hall. 
That was a good start, a friendly person. With any luck, they'd all be like this and I'd have a splendid week. I went down to unload my roll bag that was strapped to the sissy bars, unpacked and settled into my room. It was a sparse room, but clean and airy. The last haze of the day was simmering on the window ledge and suffusing the room with hues, I recall, of ripe banana. Most people think that bananas are ripe when they're yellow, but by the time they're entirely yellow, they are actually starting to rot. They are perfect when there's still a green tinge on them and they are ever so slightly crisp. I changed into my Nakpa robes and descended into the dining room and suddenly all eyes were on me. I smiled and wished the gathering good evening and took a seat at what looked like Jan's table. Her knitted shawl was draped over the back of one of the chairs. Jan came and sat next to me after a few minutes, joined by a tall lady of about my age. Jan introduced her. This is Kate, Kate Partridge. She's from Liverpool. Kate smiled. And I live in a pear tree. Hello, Kate. I'm Vic or Chugyam, whichever you prefer. The pear tree was funny. I enjoy wordplay. Can't say I'm very good at it, Kate replied. But I was teased so much when I was young that I had to find something to say before the next idiot would ask me if I'd lived in a pear tree. Now I seem to say it out of habit. Wise choice, but what do you say when you are wearing a habit? I replied with a grin. Jan and Kate both laughed, and Kate said, I wasn't expecting so much laughter here. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition, I replied, and felt as if I'd landed in a splendid situation. Kate had long hair parted in the middle. She wore a collection of layered vests and long-sleeved t-shirts. Jan McCulloch, I judged to be somewhat older, probably somewhere in her mid-thirties. She wore what seemed to be a shoulder-to-floor garment made of thick jersey cotton. She had an assortment of them, as I was to discover, and wore a different colour almost every day. They all bore a placket down the front like a grandad vest. Wrapped around her torso, she wore something vaguely reminiscent of a corset, but it was evidently only modelled on a corset as it was made of satinised cotton. These she also had in various colours. They laced up as an old-fashioned corset would have laced, but the laces were decorative rather than functional. It had the effect of turning her dress into an empire line garment. Kate was from Liverpool and came across rather like a female John Lennon. Jan, despite the Scots surname, McCulloch, appeared to be from somewhere amongst the home counties. 
You're wearing your hair differently from the earlier Chogyam, Jan commented. Is that how it's worn with robes? I usually had my hair hanging loose. Yes, mostly, although if I was going to be a little more formal about it, I'd tie it into a top knot. But I thought I looked conspicuous enough as it was. I didn't want to make too much of an exhibition of myself for those who haven't seen Nakpa robes before. As we were introducing ourselves to each other, having acquired toast and soup, a man sauntered over and demanded, albeit blandly, Why are you dressed like that? The voice was not one of friendly inquiry. What to answer? Your guess is as good as mine? Quite frankly, fuck you, sir? No, neither. What about... It's a socially acceptable alternative to nudity. No, not really an occasion for wit. So I went for, I'd be most happy to explain, but first, would you be so kind as to tell me why you were asking? He stared at me, slightly shocked at being held accountable for his intentions not knowing what to say, and was about to reply when Jan shot him a severe glance. He turned on his heel with the look of one who has been reprimanded by a superior and returned to his seat. Not a good start, I thought. Maybe I shouldn't have put the robes on after all. That's Jarvis, Jan commented with a smile. Don't mind him, he's a puppy. He wants to get me into bed, but he's such a little boy, I couldn't even think of it. That was a revelation. I'd never really met a woman with such force of personality before, apart from Amelie. Certainly, Det had force of personality, but somehow it was held in place to cover what I'd discovered to be a vulnerable persona. Jan was clearly entirely self-confident. She was also kindly and didn't have to exert her evident personal authority and she found it necessary. Are there many people like Jarvis here? I asked. Yes, a few, but don't let it worry you. It's often like this with converts of new religion. They're always more ardent than those born to it. They'll get used to you in a day or two, once they've got over the shock of new, as it were. By the way, that was an admirable response you gave Jarvis. You managed to put him in his place without any aggression. It almost sounds as if you had experience of making replies like that. Yes, I sighed, I have. I really don't like having to account for myself to a perfect stranger, and I don't like having to defend myself either. It would be easy to bark, but I refuse to be forced into counter-relation. So the I take such people is to be warm and smile, but at the same time call their number. That is to say, ask them why they're saying or asking or whatever. That seems mainly to put an end to it. As if it does, ask Kate. Then I address their anger by asking why they're angry. Then they deny being angry. Then I apologise for thinking they were angry and give them good day. Too funny, said Jan. 
good for you. Can I ask where you've come across this kind of reaction before? I met it in 1971 when I first went to India, and I tend to meet it whenever I'm in Tibetan Buddhists. It's not wonderful, I must admit. Jan laughed. They've soon changed their tune. They hear you've got your BTI. BTI is, I inquired, been to India. It's like a qualification here, like a BA or BSC. Ah, will they be more impressed if I have my BDN as well? Been to Nepal. Ooh, yes. That would have to count as an NA, it needs to be unloved. Everything I heard and everything, because I spent a year in India. But still, it actually means very little. Yes, I'm not. Some people just smoke themselves into oblivion there. But you must tell me about your time in India. I'd be most interested to hear about it. I must tell you, however, that my BTI and BTN make your time in India look like a PhD. I was only there for three months, so it's not so much to brag about. I've been to Wigan Pier, Kate added with a mischievous expression. I've never been there, Kate, but in spite of that, some people think I have a wig and Wigan address. But only when I'm wearing robes, I countered, and the gathering erupted into a gale of laughter. I'm very glad you're not stiff and pompous, Kate remarked. The nun here is, well, she's probably all right when you get to know her, but she's not a person I can talk to in this kind of way. Yes, Attila the nun, and Jarvis is all right too once you get to know him, Jan added. He's rather proud of his knowledge. It just doesn't reach as far as he thinks. He's read a lot and knows far more than I do about the Kagyu school. Most of what I know is Theravadan Buddhism and the Mahayana studies from Soto and Rinzai Zen. I've not been exploring Tibetan Buddhism for more than a year or so, and speaking of which, your name and robes. My reason for asking is that I'm interested. I wouldn't have asked you for your reason, Jan. I'd be delighted to tell you as much as you'd like to know. Am I included in this conversation? asked Kate. I mean, it's not secret or something. It seems that you can't ask anything here without running into secrecy. Certainly, there's nothing that's secret about me, or if there is, I don't advertise it, only to refuse further disclosure. I hate that kind of posturing. Good to know, Kate replied. I've had about enough of people being superior with me here. And me? asked another tall lady with amazingly frizzy hair, hair that reminded me of Steve Bruce. She wore one of those Levi skirts made by opening up the inside seams of the legs and adding huge triangular panels. Et tu, Brute, I grinned and welcomed her to sit down. She was introduced to me by Jan as Dot Dorothy Jenkins, and I got the impression that Jan knew everyone there, and most things about them. I'd mistakenly assumed that Jan was part of the establishment, but she wasn't. She was a guest, as I was. It seemed that helping out in some way was the order of the day, and I'd been assigned the duty of feeding the yak and dree in the morning. I then had to explain to her what et tu brute meant, as well as the fact that it meant nothing at all in connection with her. I was merely being surreal. She found that funny and laughed. Glad we're such a jolly crew. Once Dot had taken a seat, I explained as much as they wanted to know. I explained the Gurkha Chango Day of which I was an ordained member. It's a non-celibate ordination, I explained. 
it's based on the tantras rather than the sutras. The monastic vows come from the sutras, they're the renunciate vows, whereas the tantric vows are based on the principle of transformation. Transformation, queried Dot. Transformation is the principle of tantra. It's based on the experience of emptiness. With sutra, the principle is renunciation because you're renouncing attachment to form in order to discover emptiness. Tantra then begins with emptiness and moves toward the non-dual experience of emptiness and form. So form, in terms of the dualistic rationale, is seen as something that can be transformed rather than renounced. Um, is this all a bit abstract? Well, replied Dot, it's a bit deep, but maybe you can give an example of what that would look like. Well, the basic premise is that we are beginnessly non-dual. Enlightened, asked Kate. Yes, I'll explain why I prefer the word non-dual later. And so, being beginninglessly non-dual, all our neuroses are simply distortions of the non-dual state. Because that's the case, all our neuroses partake of the energy of the non-dual state and therefore can be transformed through tantric practices. So, as to what that would look like, greed would be liberated into generosity, equanimity and self-realised wealth. Anger would be liberated into clarity, the mirror-like state of undistorted presence. Desire would be liberated into compassion, the passion beyond passion, as Chugyam Trumpa Rinpoche described it. Paranoia would be liberated into the unconstrained facility for self-accomplished action. And willful stupidity would be liberated into ubiquitous intelligence in all-encompassing space. And you know all that? asked Jan. No, not in the sense of knowing it, like knowing my date of birth or anything like that. But I know it to the extent that I have a sense of its reality. I don't really know what to say beyond that. I know it intellectually and I'm working toward knowing it experientially. But that might take the rest of my life. I'm glad you're not one of these people who try to put on a show of what they know, Jan grinned. I find that horribly boring. Yes, I replied. I don't even really like explaining it that much, unless someone asks. And then I never know how much or how little to say. I'd say you pitched it perfectly, replied Jan.